All right, thank you guys. Go ahead, Joey. I've always wanted to sit over there. And uh, the way seemed to be blocked over here, so I just thought I would come up and take the long way there. <laughs> well, that was awkward. <laughs> Pay more attention to the program. Oh, man. Hey, we're so glad that you're here to be a part of our worship experience this morning. And uh, maybe you're joining us online as well. And we would love to have a record of you having been a part of this service. And maybe as uh, the service has, has already uh, unfolded, that the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart. And maybe it's providential that you are tuning in and uh, watching us. It's providential that you're here this morning. And maybe through the course of this, the Lord will speak to your heart and challenge you. For some of you, it may mean becoming a follower of Christ. For others, it may mean as a follower of Christ being a part of a church family, and we'd love to enter into that conversation with you. So we do hope that you would maybe take the time today or this week uh, at some point that you would just text FL Respond to the number that is provided for you, 833-571-3475, and we will get in touch with you immediately and uh, have uh, hopefully a, a meaningful conversation and time of prayer with you regarding whatever it is the Lord is laying upon your heart. I want us to open our Bibles up this morning to Hebrews 11. Next week, we're going to jump back into our Roman series. We have a few chapters left, but I wanted to make sure everyone was back in their place that has been faithfully following along uh, in that series. And so we will pick back up with Romans next uh, week, actually in two weeks, and uh, have opportunity to finish out what has been a wonderful uh, course of study for, for me and a challenge, and I hope it has been for you as well. But this morning, I want us to look at uh, Hebrews chapter 11, and specifically, we will be considering verses uh, 8 through 11 in the life of Abraham. I'm sure that you have said it before, in whatever circumstance, some challenging circumstance of life, where you have said to someone, the worst part is not knowing. Maybe it's awaiting the biopsy results. The worst part is not knowing. Waiting on the test results. The worst part is not knowing. The loss of a spouse, the tragic loss of a child. Thinking about life going forward, the worst part is not knowing. In a time of economic collapse, in a time of economic security, when companies are, are laying off, when recession or in, inflation looms, you're interviewing for jobs. The worst part is the not knowing. The admissions test that will determine your future, the worst part is the not knowing. What it's really talking about when we, or what we really are talking about when we use that language, when we say something like the worst part is the not knowing, we're addressing the very real emotion of a fear. We fear being uncomfortable. We, we fear discomfort. We fear the uncertainty of what lies ahead because we like things that are predictable. We like things that are routine and, and manageable. That's, that's human nature. And so to have to face these things and to face uncertainty is, is to be honest, with our emotions of fear. Fear of uncertainty, the fear of not knowing. Perhaps this is why one of the most redundant phrases in Scripture is do not be afraid. 
When we talk about facing our fears, we are really talking about, regardless of circumstances, we, we are talking about the life of, of faith. I mean, definition, the definition of this word faith is, well, we see it there at the very beginning of, of, of chapter 11 in Hebrews. It says, now faith is a certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not, not seen. Our faith is in something that is not evident, that is not readily visible to the eye. And yet, even though we have faith, it's a hope that sustains us through these seasons that, that are uncertain, that are unpredictable. We use the, the language and the word of, of hope, uh, not as wishful thinking. That's how the world uses that word hope. I hope this happens. But ours is a conviction regarding the certainty of, of God's future and his providential purposes. And so when we, when we use the language, the worst part is not knowing. It's really the language of faith. We're acknowledging our, our fears. And there, there's nothing wrong with that, with that first blush emotion of fear when, when unpredictable circumstances confront us. There, there is nothing unusual. It's not abnormal. It's perfectly human to have that first blush emotion of fear, being afraid. But what is telling is what happens afterwards. Does fear constrain us? Does fear hold us hostage? Does fear cause us to despair and to give up hope? Or is our, our fear something that compels us to keep going into the future that God has in store for us. I think that's why perhaps Abraham is called the father of, of faith. Because you see, Abraham, the father of faith, was called to exemplify this very thing that I'm talking about. Journeying into a place of not knowing. It says in verse 8 of Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive an inheritance, and he left not knowing, not knowing where he was going. You have to put yourself in Abraham's place. You go back to Genesis 12 when he was Abram, known as Abram, and, and this call of God upon his life began to unfold. Abraham was 75 years of age at that point. And the older you get in life, you will discover this. I know this, uh, when we're young, we have such uh, wanderlust. We have such uh, adventurous ideals of everything we want to do when we get older. And as you get older, you have to actually labor and work about introducing change to your life because the older you get, the more you want things just to stay the same. In your older years, you just want to be comfortable. You want to be settled. Yet here is Abraham as a 75-year-old man called to a place of not knowing. And he's a wonderful example for us as you and I are journeying in life. As we embrace this life of faith, of following after Christ, I hope you understand that we are called to, to a place of not knowing. We are called to this life of not knowing. We are called to this life that is unpredictable. We are called to a life that is uncomfortable. Living a life of faith in a world that is hostile to the things of God. 
So if you and I are to model this, this life, this journey into a place of not knowing like, like Abraham, what is that life supposed to look like? Well, borrowing again from Abraham's life portrayed in this passage, uh, it is to be a life of, of obedience. I'm sure you saw it in the verse I read just a moment ago. Verse 8, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. Obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he left not knowing where he was going. Now, the, what you have to acknowledge in this, that, that Abraham, Abram was willing to obey the voice of God and this call upon his life, then you and I have to know and what we have to implement into this life of obedience to which we are called. What it, what it portrays here is a very deep and abiding, profound trust in the one that is sending him. A deep, profound, abiding trust in the one that is sending him into a place of not knowing. In fact, in the Genesis account, in Genesis chapter 12 and in verse 4, it says that, that Abram went away as the Lord had spoken to him. That is, he went forth into this abyss of not knowing. He went forth obediently because he trusted deeply, faithfully, profoundly, and the one that is sending him because of that trust, he was willing to go obediently into this abyss of, of not knowing. You maybe have heard before in, in the fable of the golden key, old man earth is talking to a young man and he's telling him one of the profound truths of, of existence in, in this life. He says that there is no, he tells this young boy that there is no, there is no progress without risk. There is no going forward, there is no growth, there is no progress without risk. And then old man earth uncovers, he moves this massive stone in this cave on the floor and after uncovering this, this massive, moving this massive stone, there's this dark hole, a tunnel, an abyss where the end cannot be seen. And the boy says, where are the stairs? I see no stairs. An old man earth said, you must throw yourself in. There's no other way. Such it is in the life of faith. That's why Jesus would say to count the cost. That's why Jesus would say no man who, who turns back after putting his hand to the plow, uh, that the man who looks back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. We do not dabble in the life of faith. And if you really want to journey well into, the, into this land of not knowing, if you want to really journey well and faithfully into a place of not knowing, then it requires obedience to the things of God. He must be your absolute source of trust, the foundation of your trust. And because you trust him, you are willing to throw yourself in to not knowing because you trust him, you trust 
faithfully and obediently the word of God. The life of faith is not something to be dabbled in. It is not some side interest that you have while you're trying to pursue the interest of the world. To do so and to think so is to fail miserably into this land of not knowing. A second thing that is required of us, evident in the life of of Abraham, is he journeys to the place of not knowing. His is not just a life of obedience, but it's also a life of transience. It says there in that first clause of verse 9, by faith. By faith, Abraham, he lived as as a stranger. You'll see that again in, in verse 13. By faith, he lived as a stranger in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and, and Jacob. And it says in verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that, that they were strangers and exiles on earth. I mean, here's a man that uprooted his family for, for, for generation, and they, they were willing to become permanent exiles. In fact, that's the language of, of Paul. Paul talks about us as, as believers, that, that we are sojourners, that we are pilgrims. Peter, in, in writing the church over in 1 Peter in chapter 1, in verse 1, he writes to those who reside as strangers. And as a people called by God to a specific task, we understand, we should understand that, that this is not our home. We're a people who essentially, the metaphor is that, that we are tent dwellers. I have no sense of permanence. I have no sense of rootedness to, to this world. And really the life of faith is but a process by which I am divesting myself of the things of this world because I'm an alien. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a sojourner. I'm just, I'm just passing through for a specific task at hand. Do you know many reject the life of faith and express no interest in the life of faith because looking at others who are seeking to live the life of faith, some will say, well, you know what? That just looks hard. And they're looking at it in terms of what in their mind they think they have to give up. And when they think about what they, what they would have to give up, what, is it, what it is that doesn't match up with the life of faith, what is it that would just be baggage in the life of faith, to really be a follower of Christ, it, it just looks hard. But you know what's really hard? Just life. Life is hard. The great theologian Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until till you get hit in the mouth. Life is just hard. And I can't imagine doing life without faith. And we have this this mistaken notion, the masses have this mistaken notion, and I know the masses think this way because this is the way I used to think before becoming a follower of Christ. I used to think if I could just get through this, life's going to get easier. And a lot of people just go through life thinking everything's going to get easier. We think if I, can just, if I could just get through high school and get to college, man, everything will be easier then. Then you get to college and you realize it, it's not any easier. 
Then you have the, the challenges of academic life and your social life, trying to put all this together. You think, man, when I, I'll just look at when I can get settled. Because then when I, when I get out and get a job, everything's going to be, everything's going to be easier. Then you get in the job and you find out it's not any easier. It gets harder. What if I can just meet someone and get married? Life would be easier. Then you get married. Not easier. You know, I'll be glad when we have kids. We get kids, we can just settle down. Harder. If I can just get them out of the teenage years, if we can just get them to young adults, everything will be easy. Once they're mature, Lord knows when that happens. But when they mature, everything will be easier only to find out that the decisions and choices of your adult children are so much more painful and so much more costly with far more implications than any of those ignorant decisions they were making as, as teenagers. Everybody expects them to act like that as teenagers. Nobody expects them to act like this as adults and to make ignorant decisions, but they do. And we miss out on life because we keep waiting for life to get easier, and it doesn't. It gets harder. And that's how God uses the challenges of life. That's when faith becomes so important. Because in the life of faith, you understand that all of these challenges are a part of the toughening up process. It's a part of being reminded and being educated that this world is going to fail you. This world gives you no hope. This world gives you no assurance. This world gives you no rootedness and foundation and settledness. This world is lying to you. But from a faith perspective, when you understand the transience of this life, you understand that the hardships and challenges that we endure and that we're going through, it doesn't get easier. We get better at doing hard. We do hard better. Because the calluses I've got from this experience toughen me up for this one. The calluses I've added to my calluses from this experience will prepare me for the next one. And all of this is a process by which God is getting us to divest ourselves and our confidence and our trust in the things of this world, getting rid of the baggage of this world, preparing us for the world that is to come. Because from a faith perspective, we recognize we're just pilgrims, we're strangers, we're sojourners to this world. It offers me nothing that I'm looking for. And listen, when you come to that place, when you come to that place, when you can click it in your mind once and for all that you are a pilgrim and a sojourner, that you're a missionary just here for a season, it is so much easier because you're not worried about other people, you're not worried about advancement, you're not worried about none of that stuff floats your boat and charges your batteries. When you realize your transience in this life as a believer makes it all the more easier to do the right thing at the right time in the right moment. Theodore Roosevelt had a moment's hesitation. He hesitated in offering an invitation to Booker T. Washington to sit at the table of the president at a state's dinner. In 1901, no black man had ever sat at the table of the president of the United States 
for a steak dinner. And Theodore Roosevelt hesitated. He had a moment of hesitation in extending forth that invitation. Why? Because he was scared. He was scared of what other people would think. He was scared of what other people might do. And for any politician, the fear that what they might do is not vote for you. He was afraid of what his southern relatives might think of him. He was afraid that he might lose the southern electorate. He was concerned and afraid of what the sophisticates might say in D.C. and New York. He had a moment's hesitation. And it strikes me as odd, knowing, having read some about Theodore Roosevelt, I mean, this is the man that led the Rough Riders in, into what looked like a suicide mission. This is a man that, that, that bear hunted. He hunted bears. I mean, every other arena in life, he overcame illness, childhood hardships, depression. This is a man who was afraid of nothing. And yet here in one of these most strategic moments, a moment of noble and virtuous cause, he hesitated. He was scared of what other people might think. In fact, the headlines of the New York Times, the morning of that dinner, said, Washington, here's the headline, Washington people, as a rule, condemn president's violation of precedent. Roosevelt said, when I saw that headline, I knew I had done the right thing. He said, in fact, that there was even a moment's pause within me to not invite another human being to sit at my table because of the color of his skin. It made me ashamed. And it affirmed to me that I had done the right thing because it needed to be done. Listen, our life is a transient life. Between where we are and where we are going, all we have are these moments right now. To do the right thing, to be the people we are called to be, knowing that our life is moving to another place for a greater place place for a greater cause and greater things than this world could ever offer. And once you can embrace the transience of this life, you will journey well into, the, into that place of not knowing. A final thing very quickly that I see in the life of Abraham as he went to the place of not knowing, is not just a life of obedience. 
not just a life of transience, but, but I also sense in Abraham a life of anticipation. That a part of what is motivating Abraham is the anticipation of more. It says in verse 9, as we continue in that passage, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs, fellow heirs with the same promise. For he was looking for the city. The contrast here between the city of God and the city of man. What God offers and what man offers. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is, is God. Jump down to verse 16, he says, but, that, but as it is, they, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called, uh, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What kind of city? A city with foundations. Stability, permanence. And I like to think that Abraham, I like to think that wisdom has its, that age has the benefit of wisdom. And a part of, a part of Abraham's willingness to go forth into a place of not knowing is that at 75 years of age, he realized, he recognized the lies of this world. Everything the world holds forth is giving you meaning and purpose and, and stability. That's all lies. You experience enough heartache and difficulties in life by the time you're 75 years old, you, you realize you can never get rooted here. That there's a yearning for more with, that dwells within us, something that, that longs for stability and foundation that this world simply cannot offer regardless of how successful you think you might be. As I was reading this word about the city which has foundations. It's a word that I've heard used in the past three weeks by a young man that used that very word. He said, I'm looking for a foundation. A couple of weeks ago, I baptized Seth Dagey. I met Seth back in 2010. He was, I think, going into his senior year at Tech as our, as our quarterback for Tech football. Met Seth, and we've, we've had a friendship since their maintained relationship, texting calls since that time. I did the wedding for, for him and Abby, and after his playing career, he uh, went into coaching. Coached tight ends at USC, quarterback coach at, at, at Ole Miss. He's now tight ends coach for Purdue. Just took a job with, at Purdue University, Indiana. But I saw Seth at the bowl game, Capital Bowl, Texas Bowl, in Houston a couple of weeks ago. And Seth tells an interesting story. He said he had been thinking about calling me in recent weeks. Now, he's telling me all this at Friday lunch after the bowl game when we're both back in Lubbock. He said he had been thinking about calling me for weeks. He didn't even talk about some things. Gets to the bowl game, Ole Miss, that Wednesday night, we're playing Ole Miss, and he's up in the locker room, and, and he's telling me all this at lunch on Friday, and he said, you know, I'm up in the locker room thinking I'd like to, you know, I hope I can talk to Bobby before the game, during pregame. He said, oh, I probably won't. 
probably won't see him. So he walked out of the locker room and he's coming down the tunnel. He said, you were the first person I saw down there on the field. We talked. Seth said, in his mind, I'm, I'm thinking as we're talking, this, this really isn't a good place for me to talk to Bobby about, about what I really want to talk to him about. You know, we're just doing all the common small talk. And he says, I, 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 this really isn't a good place to talk about this. I wish I could have lunch with Bobby when we get back to Lubbock, but he probably won't have time. And he said, I'm thinking all this. And he said, about the time I'm thinking that, you said to me, hey, why don't we have lunch when we get back to Lubbock? I said, man, that's crazy. I said, you want me to add to that, that providential narrative? I said, Friday morning, I said, it was about 10 o'clock. And I said, knowing we were going to meet for lunch, I said, I started doing a group text with two other guys. I said, I was writing it. I was going to invite, I knew these were friends of yours. So I, I was going to invite them to join us for lunch because I knew you'd enjoy visiting with them. I said, but I got to the end of that text, and before I hit send, I, I said, I had a thought dawn on me. What if Seth wants to talk to me about something personal? And so I just undid the message, and I didn't send it. And I said, now here we are, after lunch, sitting in my car, talking about you and you becoming a follower of Christ. He said, I, I need to do that. I need to do that right now. He said, because my life has no foundation. He said, I feel like I have nothing to build upon. He said, I don't know what all that means. But I'm willing to do, what is ev do whatever is necessary to have that, that sense of foundation in my life. And here's a guy who, in the coaching profession, looks like he's got everything going. He was intelligent enough and smart enough and sensed that there was no foundation upon which to build a life that matters. Can you imagine now, having committed his life to Christ, the influence that God is going to give him over the lives of untold young people? Abraham wanted more than what this world could offer. He wanted a life with foundation. He anticipated. He anticipated that God had more to give than what this world could offer. And I know that there are many that are hesitant to enter into the life of faith because the world and its offerings are howling in their ear. And you think about all the things that you have to give up to become a follower of Christ. And that's the prevailing thought whistling in your ear. When in reality, those things are few. When compared to the offerings of God, what Paul says regarding the things of God and what God has in store for us, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the mind of man the things that God has in store for them. when Ulysses S. Grant was a young general. He was making his way through East Texas, trying to get 70 miles away to Corpus Christi. Had just 
a very short window of time to get back before him and the rest of his men would be considered AWOL. And he's going through his creek, swamp. He has men that are getting sick, horses that are dying. So him and another man decide to go, uh, another one of his officers decide to, to go on ahead. They've got to get to Corpus Christi to give this report. And the first night out, they hear wolves howling. This unearthly, if you've ever heard wolves howling, it's just this unearthly sound that shakes you to the core if, uh, for hearing it the first time. And he admitted his fear, this other young officer with the, with whom he was traveling, was, was more well-seasoned in the outdoors. And he asked young Lieutenant Grant, how many, how many wolves do you think are in that pack? And Grant said, not wanting to look ignorant to things, he said, I'm, I'd guess there's probably 15, 20, 25 at the most. As they continued forward, they came into an open field where they saw that wolf pack of two in number and those two ran off when they saw Ulysses and the man he was traveling with Ulysses S. Grant said I never forgot that life lesson to never allow the fears of my mind to keep me from going forward because the fears that I imagine have never been as great as I imagined them to be. That's the life of faith. Going forward into a place of not knowing. The worst part is not knowing. But it's not. You know what is far worse? Is knowing and not doing. Knowing and not following. Knowing and not proceeding forth. To know the truth of God's providential purposes, to know the truth of God revealed and made known in the per person of Jesus Christ, knowing that, and choosing not to follow, choosing not to go forth to the place of not knowing. That is the worst thing that can possibly happen. Our Father, open our eyes and our minds to understanding, to an understanding of a faith that is willing to follow you into not knowing. A faith that is willing to embrace the uncomfortable, the unpredictable, the unknown, so that we might be stretched to a place of greater dependence upon you, a greater understanding of your, your vision, your redemptive vision for this world. Father, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, that we as a foundational people might go forth into this world reflecting the rootedness and the stability and the knowing 
that only you can give. In a world that is hopeless, in a world that is filled with despair, might our presence be one of redeeming possibilities. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.